Good morning. Uh, welcome to Freeway. Add my welcome to uh, to Bex and to Tim's. Um, our poor announcements people, they're churning through so much information at the start of the year because we've got so much stuff that's kicking off and getting underway and uh, we're, we want to invite you in to participate. So, um, hey, we want you to be praying and thinking about where you can plug in at the church and not just be a passenger, but get in and serve and, and nurture and care for each other. So, you know, all those ministries... That, that kind of wander through this building from in here to our crash to Club Freeway, uh, be thinking about that. One of the things that we want to really uh, get functioning really well right out of the gate at the start of this year is our small groups. And the reason why we're, we're doing this church-wide series in Galatians is to get you uh, to journey with what we preach on a Sunday, to be in that again during the week at some point. Uh, they won't be exactly the same. Your study material will not, you know, it's not like, oh, Mason said this and there's the answer. You'll be in different stuff, but you'll be in the same part of the book as what we're preaching on a Sunday. But what we want to do is, this is just a reason, this is just an excuse to find and form a small group that you can plug in and feel like uh, you're being cared for, you're being nurtured, discipleship and grown outside of just this context of a Sunday morning, Okay. We recognize that this is not enough. Uh, you, you need more. So we're encouraging that. Uh, strengthening, nurturing each other through word and prayer would be great. Hey, uh, we're cracking into Psalm 142 this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, just open them up there. I know Rose has read it to us and we have it up on the screen. But if you have your Bibles, be great. Hey, if you don't have your Bible, I'm sure you've got it on your phone or whatever. But uh, going to be encouraging people to bring the Word of God along with them to church so that you can look at uh, what I'm actually preaching about and hopefully uh, it actually you know, squares away. So hey, let's pray and then we're going to jump in. Lord, we thank you that we gather together like this, that you, uh, you call us out of uh, a life and a world apart from you and you bring us into relationship with yourself through Jesus and then you give us this space called a church in which we can be nurtured and grown, in which we can uh, warm our hearts with affection for you and then go and share that reality with those who haven't encountered it, haven't, haven't experienced it, uh, haven't tasted what it is uh, to know the Lord. So this morning as we look into this psalm, we pray your spirit would uh, confront us, would convict us, but then uh, warm our hearts with uh, affection for you. And we pray these things uh, in Jesus' name. Well, the psalm that we're looking at today, uh, if you haven't guessed already, if you, if you didn't get the feel of it as Rose read it, is a lament, a lament psalm. And to lament is to express deep sorrow, grief and, and regret the psalms of lament that we find throughout the psalms are beautiful poems and hymns that express human struggles. Lament is confrontingly common, like it is present throughout Scripture. At least a third of the psalms that we read are indeed expressing lament. Uh, D.A. Carson says there's no attempt in Scripture to whitewash the anguish of God's people when they undergo suffering. They argue with God. They complain to God. They weep before God. Theirs is not a faith that leads to dry eye stoicism, but a faith so robust that it wrestles with God. 
Lament is not a case or, or the activity of, of murmuring you know, or in corners, mumbling uh, to oneself. That is the occupation of people who feel that God is either unable, uh, incapable, uh, not interested in bringing uh, any relief, of implying, uh, imploring any of his promises to the plights that we find ourselves in. However, lament engages. It speaks to God through complaints, as we said, anxiety, despair and protest. It's spoken out. It's, it's poured out. It's cried out in open and honest and, and, and humble distress to a God who hears, to a God who sees, to a God who knows and to a God who cares. And it is petitioning God to act in accordance with his character and his promise. The great uh, Protestant reformer Martin Luther, 15th, 16th century reformer, treasured the Psalms of Lament. And of them he said this, What is this greatest thing in the Psalter? But this earnest speaking amid the storm and the winds of every kind. Where do you find deeper uh, find deeper, more sorrowful, more pitiful words of sadness than in the Psalms of Lamentation. There again, you look into the hearts of the saints as into death. Yes, as into hell itself. When they speak of fear and hope, they use such words that no painter uh, could so depict for your fear and hope. And no Cicero, no great orator, or, or other orator has so portrayed them. And that they speak these words to God and with God. This, I repeat, is the best thing of all. This gives these words a double earnest in life. That we can speak these words of deep grief and complaint to God. And he listens and he hears and he cares. This particular psalm is written by David. David is a shepherd boy who becomes the king of Israel and is viewed in scripture as a man after God's own heart. Read that in 1 Samuel 13 and we read it in the book of Acts chapter 13. Nice bit of symmetry, doesn't mean anything, just noticed it. It's a phrase that is not about David's character though, but about God, about his character, how God chooses to use the weak to make much of his strength. How God uh, plucks people out of obscurity and insignificance and shapes them into instruments of his service. How God commits himself to their ongoing transformation and wrestle and recovery from sin. And how God commits, and, and God as their steadfast and loving covenantal God is the one who works in David, who works on David's heart. To turn him into, despite at, you know, the odd kind of failure, and some of them were pretty epic, a man whose life is lived in trust and faithfulness to God. It was God who chose David to be king. God who chose David as the means through, uh, through uh, which he would advance his promise of redemption and grace. And one day would actually uh, fill up the throne that he gave to David with a king who would be called king of kings and whose kingdom would know no end. Who David and the other psalmists and indeed the whole Old Testament with increasing clarity 
begin to write to, begin to uh, frame hope around this mysterious figure called a Messiah, who we know to be, due to the testimony of Scripture, to be Jesus, who himself was born into obscurity, into poverty, but as the true royal son, capital S, is the true king appointed uh, by God, of God. And rather than requiring transformation, gives his life to transform uh, these rebellious subjects and adopt them as sons and daughters of this kingdom, of his kingship. Nevertheless, it is David in whom the promise of a Messiah, of this mysterious figure, begins to emerge throughout Scripture who God has anointed as king and, and through whose line, whose descendants, this Messiah will eventually come. This, this is David. So surely, surely that would attract some kind of special favor, some kind of blessed life. Surely you would want to keep such an important figure who carries the hope out of harm's way, out of trouble. That is not the case. It's David in whom the promise is given that we find writing this psalm, a psalm of lament. Again, if you have your Bibles there and you look at the top of your Bible there, you, you will find that it says uh, the psalm when David was in a cave. Now, a cave is not the usual hideout or hangout of an anointed king. However, it is the hideout of a man who finds himself without a friend in the world. David finds himself in this cave because uh, of the fact that he's been anointed as the heir apparent, as, as, as the king to come. Samuel, the priest, has, has come down and, and out on the fields of Bethlehem has, has, has anointed him as king. But the thing about that is there is a king already ruling in, um, in, 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 in Bethlehem and it's Saul. But what's happened is the spirit of God has been taken from Saul because he has not lived in obedience to God and has now been given to, to David. And so David lives under this blessing and Saul lives under anxiety and all kinds of uh, worry and fear and concern and uh, he just loses his mind and he becomes increasingly suspicious of David and increasingly suspicious of anyone who has anything to do with David. And that's why David is now on the run for his life and finds himself uh, in this cave. Saul has become increasingly uh, unstable, suspicious of David. I think I'm back in where I needed to be and associated with uh, anyone who has anything to do with him. Uh, in this story, he has just put to death uh, 85 priests along with all their households, for unwittingly uh, aiding and assisting David's escape. Despite David's continual and committed and at times selfless and even in danger of his own life, his commitment to Saul as the anointed king, David has never given Saul any reason to, to be worried about him, of his usurping of him. Saul is consumed by a bitter spirit that drives him 
relentlessly uh, in jealousy to remove David as the successor to his throne. This whole thing, this whole atmosphere is not helped by the fact that, that the people, uh, the, the, these Israelites have, have now, they're singing this song about David. Saul has killed his thousands. David, his tens of thousands. That God's favor rests on David has actually made him a marked man in the eyes of Saul, the current king. So after Saul has made several attempts on David's life, he fled out of the court, out of the presence of Saul, uh, to his home, back to where he lived. But Saul pursues him there. He only escapes from that, that situation because his wife lowers him out of a window and, and allows him to escape. And she kind of delays the assassins that have come for David's life. From there, he flees uh, to Samuel, the prophet. But again, he is tracked down. His little map, hope you can read it, tracks him down. And from there, he goes up uh, to Nob. And there, he meets the priest Elimelech where Elimelech feeds him and gives him the sword of Goliath. But he's spotted there by Diag, a servant of Saul. And so Saul continues to pursue David. From there, David flees to Gath, where he has to pretend to be mad, has to pretend to have lost his mind, so that that king, the king of Gath, won't be threatened by his presence and want to kill him too. Without a friend or a place in the world, David finally makes his way to this cave in Adullam. He marks a low ebb in David's fortunes and the fortunes of his life. The pathway and the life that he may have envisaged on the fields outside Bethlehem uh, when the prophet Samuel anointed him as God's choice for king must seem to him compromised, must seem to him at odds with where he finds himself now, so far from his home, so far from those familiar fields, so far from power, so far from glory, without comfort and quarter and in distress, feeling abandoned. David's trust in God in this cave is remarkable. David, rather than grumble and murmur and just fuel a self-pity and harbour bitterness, engages openly and honestly with God. And as is the way with lament psalms, distress is always uh, recounted in an appeal to Yahweh, who unlike the psalmist, who unlike David, is not uh, powerless and is faithful and good. The sufferer always nearly moves on to some expression of hope, and we find this in this psalm. It is a misunderstanding, however, as we read through these brief seven uh, verses in this psalm, that this is a quick transition. That it just kind of was piffy and just happened like that, from crying to rejoicing. It is always actually the culmination of a long struggle. Cave might not be the most comfortable place for a king to hang out, but it is a great place to shape the heart of a king who's more than capable of looking after himself but ultimately has to come to a place and discover for himself that his ultimate trust is in God, that his ultimate need is met in God and not the craftiness and powers of his own hands and mind. And so a cave becomes a refuge of hope in which our hearts, in which David's hearts are warmed with affection and trust in God.
You may not find yourself in a literal cave like David. But the application uh, is not beyond metaphor, is, is not, uh, can be applied to our circumstances, if you like. Your cave might be a, a seemingly uh, irreparable marriage. Your cave might be the endless frustration of mistreatment, undermining politics at work. Uh, your cave might be the grief and heartbreak of, of children not moving forward in their faith. Your cave, your place of despair might be the loss of health and mobility. What does this lament of David instruct us to do? How does it inform us to operate in our own caves? How does David speak to us from this cave? How, how does the Lord actually speak to us from this cave? Well, firstly, it reminds us that the Lord hears our prayers. So pray, articulate, speak your plight. David not only cries aloud with his voice, but earnestly with his heart. In both the opening lines of this psalm, the phrase, my voice is emphatic, stressing uh, how in his stressing the personal individuality of David. It's, it's, it's my voice. I. I can cry out. I can approach. I can speak to God. This, this puts forward the importance of putting your personal prayers into words before God. David spoke with God. He didn't murmur. He didn't mumble about God or the situation like God was unaware, not concerned, or that his situation was the sum of all things. He addressed the only one who knew more about what was going on in David's life than David did. To cry out or to scream, depending on how you interpret it, is not so much to do with the loudness in which he speaks, but the urgency and the nature and what is urgent here is the need for grace or mercy, as the ESV put it, but relief. Cry out, scream out as how David feels. Mercy and grace is the ultimate goal of his prayer. David pours out his complaint and the troubles to God. Listen, I wasn't sure how to write this, but this is no limp-wristed, uh, woe is me, I can't deal with life sort of thing. It doesn't know what to do. This is an intentional, purposeful address. This is all his strength, all his energy going into this. And it's of certainty. It's of certainty of relational confidence. He cries out in certainty that God hears him. There's nothing insipid about it. In spite of the overwhelming circumstances. Listen, look, hear me. You don't find in this cave any of that, that positive confession rubbish that, that comes from the kind of name it and claim it movement. That is not what you find anywhere in Scripture. And you certainly don't find it here. This is negative confession. Your voice is given to you to be in relationship with God, not replace God. Here we find the tension between the anguish of the soul and dependence and confidence in God. David just simply assumes that God will listen to him. And more than listen, 
hear him. We might not be able to verbalize our pain or our suffering to those around us for various reasons. But there is never a complaint that we might have that God is not prepared to hear, that God can't handle. There is space for negative emotions. There is validity to negative confession. Yes, life sucks at times. I don't like it. I want to die. I feel desolate. Just being honest. It's not a lack of faith that these people, you, I, David, is experiencing life like this. It's real. It's not some pretend fabricated thing. And we can pour out how that affects us, how that makes us feel. And God hears that. Our prayers are heard. We can talk to God. Isn't that extraordinary? I don't know if you've ever thought about how extraordinary that is. Secondly, the psalm tells us that God knows our circumstances. So, so don't be overwhelmed. Try not to be overwhelmed by these circumstances. David, this mighty warrior who Israel are singing dance about, confesses that he is emotionally and mentally fragile. And that puts him in a position of great vulnerability, a position of great disadvantage. And so his spirit faints. It realizes its own limits. He would easily be overcome, uh, easily defeated. He's at the point of surrender. But David knows that what life does to us depends on what life finds in us. And when we are at the end of our personal resources and abilities, all that remains, hopefully, in us is faith. And David was a man with a heart of faith, a failing heart, a fainting heart but a heart that had faith. Faith is not some some leap into the great unknown. It is not a a word used to describe uncertainty at, at any level. Faith is the intentional movement, the intentional action, the intentional activity based on evidence and experience. So a fainting spirit is held in place by the knowledge and experience of a mighty God. Alec Moiter, he's written a commentary, points out in his commentary that the term or the phrase, you know, here that we find here in verse 3, is also used of the intimate relationship of a married couple. A married couple in love. A married couple that care and delight in each other. Think about that. You know. That's the kind of noise that's being expressed here. David is saying that the Lord exercises over his circumstances an intimate understanding of how they're bending him out of shape. The Lord will exercise not just a generalized kind of you know, knowledge of his soul, but an informed one, informed care of his soul. Neither David or you and I are just numbers, job cards, uh, that, that God is just working his way through and sorting out. The care of God is personal. It's personalized and it's intimate. Jesus spoke to this in Matthew 10 and and, and Luke 12, addressing the worries and anxieties that his disciples will face uh, through their faith in him, uh, the persecution that would come. And he says, hey, 
don't, don't, don't be anxious. Your father knows you. Hey, he, he knows the hairs on your head. He knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. Surely you're more important than a sparrow. This is the kind of intimate knowledge that God applies to us. Added to God's understanding of how life affects us individually is God's knowledge of each individual path. While life beyond the cave is unknown to David, it is known to the Lord. So while David sees no escape, no let up from his current crisis, his cries for grace and mercy are to the one who knows his path, who knows the way out or knows what lies ahead. The Lord in whom David trusts knows him, knows his path, knows his way out. Nevertheless, David confesses that as he looks about at life, he sees one trap after another. The minute he gets out of one uh, situation of hardship, another one springs up. There's no let up to his struggle. This is the low point of the psalm as David really pours out his heart. I, I look to the right. There's no one there. To, say, to look to the right is to say in effect and find no one there. Where are you, Lord? My defender, my shield, the language we put around God. Where is the one who knows me? Who knows my path? I feel abandoned. The right is where your legal counsel should stand. The right is where a bodyguard or you know should stand. Someone there positioned to protect you. There is no one there. No one who cares for David. No one who cares if he lives or dies. David has no refuge. He is a refugee for whom no one cares. This is how he feels. David pours out this. He pours out what he feels against what he knows. Again, this is not faithlessness. This is faith in its boldest form. It is a faith that insists that all of life, even the experiences of desolation, are rightly brought before God. There's nothing out of bounds, nothing precluded, nothing inappropriate. Everything properly belongs to the conversation of the heart. To withhold parts of life from that conversation is in fact to think that you can hold parts of your life uh, hidden away or perhaps inappropriate for the sovereignty of God. Who knows, who knows David? Who knows us? Who knows his path? Who knows our path? It's appropriate that these things should be brought out on the table. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 7, Humble yourself, therefore, under, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Again, this word care speaks about the intimate and unlimited knowledge that God has. It's not a call to just relax. Oh, yeah. In passivity. But rather, it's a rallying call to engage God in this. To take refuge in God purposefully. Verse 5 is the turning point of the psalm. With a doubling down on his faith, 
in God and not his feelings about this situation, the psalmist lifts his voice once again to the Lord, this time in affirmation of greater realities. The Lord is his refuge. The Lord is his hope. Not, not, not looking now at merely a cave. Not just kind of thinking about merely how his heart feels. When the edges of life fray and the ground beneath us crumbles, when trap after trap, disappointment after disappointment rob you of your strength, you are not lost. You are not unseen. You are not unheard. You are not unsheltered. God is the refuge of the soul. There is a warm blanket for the soul in a cold night of despair and it is the presence of God. The experience of God within the crisis. God in the cave. God in the crisis. The psalmist says to the Lord, uh, the Lord is his portion. This word portion is used to describe the dividing up of plunder, the dividing up of treasure or food or land. The tribes of Israel were given their portion. They were given their land as an ongoing security. Your portion secures you. Your portion is uh, your promise. The Lord is his refuge and his ongoing security and great hope. The psalmist closes out. Now David closes out with a note of confidence that God will meet his needs and that this this distress that he has is temporary. And that one day, rather than lament, he will share with God's people how the Lord was his refuge and hope and brought him through the crisis and out of the cave. David has shifted now from crying out to acknowledging that God has heard him. Attend. Now that you've heard me, attend to my cry. For I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong. Is David's way of saying, I am powerless to save myself. You've heard me. My hope is in you. And he looks forward to a day when it is not a cave, a prison that confines him, but the gathered people of God around him. A day when he can give thanks to God who holds the failing soul in place with his presence and his portion. David's prayer has led him to a place of dependence on God to meet his needs. Like so many other psalms of lament, this one begins in desolation, but ends in hope, ends in delight. But while optimism can be found in the end, pessimism and despair are allowed to be aired forcefully, unashamedly. The men and women of the Old Testament were as real as you and I are today. They danced, they sang, they rejoiced, they laughed, they argued, they confessed, they lamented and they mourned. They expressed emotions to God in prayer, just as we do today. When we encounter difficulties and struggles and need God's rescue, salvation and help, the Psalms of Lament are a good place to turn to, to help us shape an appropriate response to our suffering and hardship. You know, it was to the Psalms that Jesus turned in his distress. On... on, on On the night of his betrayal, sitting around having that last supper, it was Psalm 41 that Jesus quotes. On the cross, we hear him quote Psalm 22 and Psalm 31. How comforting to know that the Psalms are the place of refuge and assurance for Jesus. The writer of Hebrews, speaking about Jesus, says that we have a high priest 
one who speaks on our behalf, who intercedes with God on our behalf, who is not unable to sympathize with our weakness, he would go to the Psalms. He has been to a place where he needed the Psalms. He can sympathize with us, but not to seek refuge, but to become our refuge was Jesus. His suffering, his dark night of the soul, his place of despair where he was friendless and alone was so, as the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, that we could now with confidence draw near to God and his throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. The psalmist knew his ultimate hope laid in the goodness of God and that goodness of God has been fully expressed in Jesus who does more than rescue us from the the temporal crisis. He rescues us from the crisis of sin that we are powerless to escape from and to set us free with grace. Hey, in our lament, in our pain and suffering, the Psalms instruct us to remember God. To push toward him, not run away from him. But remember that Jesus is the full expression, the full hope, the full portion, the full promise of all that the psalmist longed for, of all that they wrote about. Security and hope.